All right, the microphone is on, which means we're really starting. Okay, so uh, if you guys have your confession, we are going to be in chapter 30 of that confession of the Lord's Supper. If you don't, don't worry on the handout. I should have given you all the paragraphs to help read. We've got eight paragraphs this morning, so that should be really quick. Um, what we're going to do is we'll break it up uh, into four readers, and we'll have the first reader do paragraphs one and two, the second reader three and four, the next five and six, and the last one seven and eight. So can I get four readers? Michael, one and two, Justin, three and four, Edgar, five and six, anybody else? Ben, seven and eight. Wow, that was easy. All right, well, start us off then. The supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night wherein he was betrayed to be observed by his churches unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance and showing to all the world the sacrifice of himself in his death. Confirmation of the faith of believers and all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and their growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe to him and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other. In this ordinance, Christ is not offered up to his Father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for remission of sin of the quick or dead, but only a memorial of the one that the one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross once for all, and for and a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same. So that the popish sacrifice of the Mass, as they call it, is most abominable, injurious to Christ's own sacrifice, the alone propitiation, propitiation for all the sins of the elect. Mm -hmm. The Lord Jesus hath, in this ordinance, appointed by appointed his ministers to pray and bless the elements of bread and wine and thereby, and thereby to set them apart from a common to a holy use and to take and break the bread to take the cup and they and they communicating also themselves to give both to the communicants the denial of the cup to the people worshipping the elements the lifting them up or carrying them about for adoration and reserving them for any uh, pretended pretended religious use are all contrary to the nature of this ordinance and to the institution of Christ. The outward elements in this ordinance, duly set apart to the use ordained by Christ, have such relation to him crucified, as that truly, although in terms used figuratively, they are sometimes called by the names of the things they represent. In other words, the body and blood of Christ, operating in substance and nature, is to remain truly and only bread and wine, as they were before. That doctrine which maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation, by consecration of a priest, or by any other way, is repugnant, not to scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason, overthrows the nature of the ordinance, and has been and is the cause of many false superstitions, yea, of gross idolatries. Were the receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death, the body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance, as the elements themselves 
are to their outward senses. All ignorant and ungodly persons, as they are unfit to enjoy communion with Christ, so are they unworthy of the Lord's table, and cannot, without great sin against him, while they remain such, partake of these holy mysteries, or be admitted thereunto. Yea, whosoever shall receive unworthily are guilty of the blood, body and blood of the Lord, eating and drinking judgment to themselves. Okay, that's some pretty serious stuff that we just read over in the confession. And you'll note that this chapter um, has twice as many paragraphs as the one on baptism. And they're Baptists. And they're going to spend way more time unpacking the Lord's Supper because of its importance and because of, remember, in our historical context, what they were trying to do and what they were trying to explain by being a part of the Reformed tradition, even though Baptists, and making very clear that they weren't Roman Catholic and making a big push against the idea of the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist um, for the Catholic faith. Now, I want to do two things as we start. First, I want to just help you understand that more ink was spilt over the Lord's Supper during the time of the Reformation than the issue of justification. Let that sink in for a moment, because we know that justification was such an important... Uh-oh, we'll have to make sure we get that back up there. Uh, but we uh, understand that justification by faith alone was hugely important to the Reformers. It was trying to help us understand that we weren't Catholic, that we thought the only thing that could save us was Christ's work on the cross, not our good works. But more ink was spilt on the Lord's Supper than on justification. So it's an important topic for us to to look at this morning. Now, another question I want to, or a question I want to ask you this morning is, how many people grew up in a Baptist or non-denominational church? You raise your hand. Okay. How many of you grew up in a Reformed, Presbyterian, uh, any of those denomination churches? Okay. How about in the Roman Catholic Church? Okay. Thank you, Brittany. Yeah. All right. So a few of you. Okay. So this morning, we are going to see all of those different positions. I didn't see any Lutheran hands go up. I spent some time in a Lutheran church. I didn't ask that, but um, Lutheran uh, is the other kind of view that we are going to unpack this morning. Um, so we are going to focus in then on what the Second London Baptist Confession was trying to teach to the people and saying that this is what they confess. Now, most of us growing up in a Baptist or non-denominational church will understand the view of the Lord's Supper as memorial. Does that ring any bell to anybody that grew up in a Baptist church or a non-denominational church? They'll say that, right, this do in remembrance of me, right? And it would be memorial, thinking back, right? Thinking upon what was done on our behalf. But is that all the Lord's Supper is? Is it just a memorial? Which is the way I was brought up and taught uh, when I ended up going to a non-denominational church and the Lord saved me. Through that, uh, there was the explanation of the Lord's Supper only being memorial. So this morning, we're going to unpack, is that what the Baptists of the 17th century thought when they wrote this confession? And we're going to give you all the other kind of views of it as well, just to give you a well-orbed view of the Lord's Supper. So here's a quote by Richard Barcellus. 
He said the Lord's Supper is a soul-changing, soul-altering, spiritually maturing or nurturing ordinance as blessed by the Spirit of God to that end. Okay, so let's jump in then with your blanks. I uh, gave you guys a few of those this morning. So when we read in this, um, in this chapter, we're going to read that this was the Lord's Supper is an ordinance. And we talked about that last week, um, what an ordinance was. It's a rule or law given by a sovereign uh, for other people to obey, right? So we saw that the two ordinances in the New Testament are what? Lord's Supper and Baptism. Very good. Okay, so the Lord's Supper was instituted to be obeyed, observed in Christ's churches. Okay, that's your first blank. Observed in his churches. Not at home. Not at a special chapel service. Not even online. (gasps) Gasp, right? How dare you, Andrew, say all those things. Let's look at our Bibles. Um, Let's go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42. Can I get a reader for that? Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 42. Okay, Ronnie. And then let me get 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 22. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 22. Ooh, the eyes are going to start focusing in on people. You've already read, Justin. You just, we've got to make someone feel uncomfortable. Ah, Keith, good. Okay, all right, so we got our two readers. Ronnie, would you lead us off? So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Okay, the reason why I wanted you to see this is we actually get something really important just in these two verses. Remember, this is Peter's uh, sermon at the Pentecost, right? He's, he's preaching and all the people are like, what do we do? That was, that was cutting us to the quick. Um, help us. What do we do? And Peter tells them, repent and be baptized. So those who received the word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, what is being talked about here is being added to the church. And now I want you to see what the church does. And they devoted themselves, all these people who have been added in, to what? To the apostles' teaching, which would be the unpacking of doctrine or the word of God. To fellowship, spending time together, being a part of the body of Christ. To breaking of bread. This idea of breaking of bread is not just eating with each other, although that's good, and I, and I want you guys to eat with each other all the time. The breaking of bread that's being talked about here is actually the Lord's Supper. That's where we get the idea of Lord's Supper, especially in the New Testament church, the breaking of bread and then the prayers, and that being obviously uh, important things to be doing in our local church, uh, taking, uh, being baptized taking the Lord's Supper together, devoting ourselves to the teaching of the word and the prayers. Okay, 1 Corinthians 11. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. 
For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you <coughs> When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who are who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Okay. I'm going to jump down to verses uh, 33 and 34 that says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Now, what we're seeing that Keith helped us hear and what we're hearing right now is that people were, were eating the Lord's Supper, were drinking right the, the bread and the wine. They were doing that out of turn. They weren't waiting for everyone to be there. So we see the Lord's Supper was actually supposed to be done when the body, the local body, right? This, this letter was written to a specific church in Corinth, right? When the local body gathered, they were supposed to come together and take the supper together. And if they were, if they were doing it before other people got there, or if they were doing it in other places, he was saying, that's not the Lord's Supper. You're supposed to wait till the body is gathered and take it together as a body, like we do here at this church every Sunday. Okay, so that's just a few verses to help us understand that the Lord's Supper is actually supposed to be taken as the body, as the church. And I know during COVID, there was a lot of pushback against this. There was, hey, let's, let's watch online, and then we'll take it together. And uh, I don't want to be you know, too much of a Mark Deverite, but I would say the guy really understands and helps us understand that no, although we all long to take the Lord's Supper, and we wanted to um, when we were not able to meet together, but we had to watch online just for a few weeks until we started gathering again, but that was not the time to take it because the time to take the Lord's Supper is when the body is gathered together and we get to partake of this beautiful ordinance that Christ gave his church. So we have baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay, now it is a remembrance and we are to do it unto the end of the world. So until he comes, meaning that we will no longer need to observe the supper in eternity because we'll actually be eating with Christ at that point. But bonus points, maybe even a sticker if I can find one, if someone can define positive law for me again. Just the idea of it, right? Because that's what we're talking about right now, is that the Lord's Supper is a positive law. I know you want stickers bad, so I'm going to hear this. Yeah. It's a command that we should do. A command that we should do. Yeah. Now, does that last? Was that from all of time a positive law? Um, well, it was because he told you to work the garden. And then the negative law was not to eat the tree. The tree of, uh, yes. So positive laws have existed from the beginning. Good. Yes, the Lord's Supper, though, that was added in the New Testament. Very good. It was, um, it was a fulfillment. <laughs> You'll get it. You'll, I'll make sure it's a nice pretty one, too, uh, for you. Really, really cute colors. You'll like it. All right. Cool. So sticker for you. Um, but for what purpose? Okay, so we're going to answer a few questions. What is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? Now, a lot of us raised our hands when we said it was a perpetual remembrance, right? And that's important. It is. We're remembering the work of Christ 
on our behalf. I mean, that's what Christ says when he institutes the Lord's Supper. He says, do this in remembrance of me. He's trying to help us remember what he is going to do or what, well, at that point, what he is going to do and then for us, what he has already done. But that's not all the confession says about the Lord's Supper. In fact, it it explains a few more things. It says, actually, it's for the showing forth to all the world the sacrifice of Christ. It's for the confirmation of faith of believers and in all the benefits that we receive from Christ. It actually gives us a spiritual nourishment, growth in him, and helps us engage in all the duties that we owe Christ for being a believer in him. It's interesting. It's an interesting thing to think about when we are talking about the Lord's Supper because we can make it um, something uh, that doesn't maybe give as much as we should to this idea. Now, let me talk a little bit about that and I'm going to run out of time, so I'm going to have to move quickly through the rest of this. But I just want you to hear that for a second because I grew up this way and when I would hear... Uh, somebody teach anything other than remembrance, I remember getting real like, Mm-mm, nope, don't, don't give me that. I, I don't want to hear that. Um, that. That sounds like something a little fishy. So maybe I'm, I'm showing you some of my cards. But what we are seeing from Paul in the first letter to the Corinthians, he actually talks a little bit more about the Lord's Supper even before chapter 11. He talks about it in chapter 10 when he is going to be talking to them about idolatry. And he says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? What is he talking about? What's Paul talking about? The cup of blessing and it's a participation in the blood of Christ. What is he saying? The the wine or the juice that we take on Sunday mornings when we take the Lord's Supper, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the Lord's Supper here. Now, he continues. The bread that we break, is it not, underlining your Bibles, a participation? That word's used twice. Participation in the body of Christ. So when he's trying to help them see the difference between idolatry, he points back to the Lord's Supper as this thing that we participate in. So not just remember, but participate. When you go and you look at the Greek of this word, it's koinonia, which means fellowship. It means uh, being a part of uh, the body with other people. And so when he's talking about this, the Lord's Supper, he's saying there's an actual participation with the blood and the body of Christ. Doesn't mean that the the bread and the wine miraculously, magically, by an incantation, turn into the real body and blood of Christ. But there is a participation that's happening. Okay, at the end, Lord willing, if we can get there, I'm gonna unpack that just a little bit more. But I just wanted you guys to hear that. There is the purpose of participation, which is what the first paragraph of Uh, Chapter 30 in this confession is trying to help us see. And then finally, it's a bond or pledge of communion with Christ and each other. The supper is a means through which spiritual nourishment and growth in Christ occurs. 
Something happens through the supper that alters the souls of believers for the better. This is means of grace language. The supper is more than a memory. Okay, so let's get into paragraphs two through eight. So really paragraph one, we could just spend so much time there. It's really rich and deep, but we ain't got time for that. So we're going to go and do a survey of this and move quickly through the rest of our paragraphs. So what we're going to see is kind of a, a, a negative, positive, positive, negative uh, throughout the rest of the confession about what it is and what it isn't, right? They want to be clear what they think it is, and then they want to be clear of how they're not Catholic, okay? So, I mean, we read that popish ceremony, right? They're, they're kind of, they're getting after uh, Roman Catholics in this confession because they want to be clear that they don't think that that is biblical. So... What is the nature of the Lord's Supper? Well, let's begin with what it isn't. What it isn't. It isn't Christ being offered up as a sacrifice to the Father. Okay? It isn't Christ being offered up as a sacrifice to the Father. Why isn't it? Go ahead. Yes, Brittany, you were like, give it to me. Go. We want to hear it. Why isn't it a sacrifice? Yeah. Write that little note in there. That's not in my in my lecture this morning, but that was some some deep stuff. Okay, so make sure you write that in there. But yeah, right. Uh, it was a sacrifice once and for all, says Hebrews nine. Right. That's what Hebrews nine is trying to to point us to. Yep, Hebrews nine twenty five. 26 and 28. It's trying to help us understand that this was only happened once. It doesn't continually happen. We don't need multiple sacrifices of Christ. If we needed multiple sacrifices of Christ, Christ wouldn't have been able to atone for, excuse me, all of our sin in that one time. Okay? So, what it isn't, it's also not a sacrifice being made for the remission of our sin. So, we don't take the Lord's Supper and then all of a sudden be like, oh, yes. Blank slate, I'm, I'm, I've been forgiven. No, in this moment, as we're taking it, it's a remembrance of what Christ has already done. It's a remembrance of us to say, my sins, all of them at the cross have been forgiven forever. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have to repent still of our sin. We do. We do still need to repent. 1 John 1, 9 talks about that act, that we need to continue to repent of our sins in Christ who is faithful to forgive us for those sins. Okay, so the nature of the Lord's Supper. What is it? It's a memorial of that one offering up of himself on the cross once and for all. Okay, so the nature of the Lord's Supper is that it is a memorial. It's not only a memorial. I'll try to make that argument. But it is a memorial of Christ offering himself up once and for all. And it's also a spiritual oblation. Now that's a word we use all the time, right? All of you guys in your common vernacular slip in oblation. Um, anyways, I'm not going to try to fit it in a sense right now because I would embarrass myself. So spiritual oblation is like an offering of praise. Okay, so that's that, you know, some people would say it's not an offering and I would say, well, it's kind of an offering because we're offering up our praise to God, our thanks to God, 
That's why the Lord's Supper in the old times was called the Eucharist, because it means to be thankful. We're thankful of what Christ has done. Okay, so the nature, a memorial, a spiritual oblation. Well then, how do we celebrate it? Okay, that's what paragraphs three through four are going to try to tell us, and you'll even get to see this morning. Okay, how do we celebrate it? What we don't do. Okay, we don't deny the people the cup or only let the clergy partake of the Lord's Supper. Okay, I don't know if you've been to a mass before, but you see the drinking of the cup, the, the breaking of the bread, this very uh, ceremonial, um, uh, you know, really uh, interesting kind of religious service that is provided, and then people can come up. Um, but in that moment, and, and what was done back then in the 17th century, is that there was a denial for the people to actually receive these things, and the clergy were the only ones taking place or partaking of the Lord's Supper. Now, there was also something that they did in the worshiping the bread and the wine. So all of the wine had to be finished. All of the bread had to be completed. Why? Because they were actually eating the body of Christ. They were actually drinking the blood of Christ, what they thought. And so you can't waste it. You, you don't just dump out the body of Christ down uh, the trash or in the sink. You've got to finish it. Right, And so the priests would gulp down the wine and finish it off. Or they would reserve it for some sort of religious use. And the confession, uh, again, is a little snippy here and calls it pretend religious use. No, that didn't actually do some cool spiritual miracle. Uh, you were pretending. So again, this is not me being critical. This is old dead people being critical of the Roman Catholics, okay? So what do we do? We pray for the Lord's Supper. We want to set apart the bread and the cup, not as something that is transformed miraculously into something different, but we do set it apart. Um, we, we have men who come here and they, and they put the bread and the juice together um, for us to partake of every week. Um, here at Grace Covenant Church, we, we do. We set it in that beautiful kind of ornament, ornament, ornament dish um, up there on the table for us to look at, to remember. And then we, we distribute it to the people. We want them to take it. We want us all to take it. Now, we're going to have to clarify who can actually take it, but all that can, we want to take the Lord's Supper. In fact, the elders spent a lot of time defining who would be able to take the Lord's Supper, um, and we want to encourage people to do that. So what are the elements? Okay, this is important. This is where we're going to get into some really meaty um, theology. Okay, so what they aren't. They aren't changed into the actual body and blood of Jesus. Okay, that's a $10 theological term. Anybody want to take a stab at it? It was already read. Emma. Transubstantiation? Transubstantiation, yes, as I kicked the pulpit. Uh, that's, that's the word, and that actually just means that the bread and the wine have turned into the body and the blood of Jesus. Now, it's done by consecration of a priest. So a priest has to say this. In fact, that's why Martin Luther, in the Reformation, couldn't do it. He was waiting. It was his first mass. His dad had come to watch him do it, and he's freaking out. He's like, I, I, can't, I, I can't actually turn this into the body and the blood. 
What do I do? And he flees. I mean, it's awesome. What a story of Martin Luther, right? He's so scared. He can't do it. He can't uh, uh, be a part of this thing. And then, and then unfolds, right? The 95 theses and all the things that partake or come from this. But anyways, it was this, this moment where it's described as Luther was sweating, probably like me, and just dripping down his head and just terrified about actually partaking in something that he just didn't believe in. He didn't believe that that's what actually happened. So consecration of a priest. Now, I had to put this quote in here because it's disgusting, um, but it's by a guy named Lon Frank. Okay? He doesn't have a last name because I, I don't know why, but he's about the uh, 11th, 12th century. And this is what he said, and I put it in here for you so you would never forget it. This is what he said about transubstantiation, about the Lord's Supper, the Catholic way. He said, the very body of Christ was truly held in the priest's hand, broken and chewed by the teeth of the faithful. Are you serious? Are you serious? What? What was that? Would be against the Old Testament. I'm sorry. <laughs> She's preaching back there. All right, we, we hear you. We hear you. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's crazy, right? I can't believe that this guy would think that. And if we thought that, you know, that I... I think the Catholics will point back to church history a lot and be like, hey man, listen, we've had this running history from the beginning and you Baptists, that's cute, but we've been there from day one, right? And we would just point out that the interpretation of the Lord's Supper in this manner was not solidified in the Catholic Church until 1215 at the Fourth Lateran Council, okay? So for them to be like, oh, this is how it's been done forever, no, it hasn't. And that was not the theology even in the beginning. Now, there were some church fathers that would say yes to that. Um, the one that made me so sad was Chrysostom, uh, the golden-mouthed preacher, actually held that view. And then what actually made me feel a little bit uncomfortable was that Origen held the other view. And Origen, anyways, throughout history, we can maybe do a study on Origen later, but he's got some wacky thoughts. But there were plenty of others um, that held to the fact that, no, this isn't actually the body and blood of Christ. This is just for us to remember him by. Uh, it's, a, it's not the woodenly literal translation of the body and the blood. It's to help us understand that we are partaking of Christ or this ordinance that he's given us, not in actual chewing him up, but to help us think through that um, analogy. Okay, so what are they then? If they're not the actual body and blood of Jesus, what are they? Well, they're just bread and wine. That's all they are. Because that's all they're uh, supposed to be. Or if you see in my little footnote, sometimes there's some juice that, that Larry made that was delicious one time. Maybe a little tart. And uh, I, I really liked it. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, that's, that's all they are. They're, they're just what they are. They're just bread, they're just juice or wine. It's not supposed to be woodenly literal. It's supposed to be seen figuratively, okay? All right, you guys are doing great. You're hanging with me. Hang in there. Um, chapter seven and eight. Who can't and why? When we're thinking about who can receive the Lord's Supper. So we need to know who is not allowed at the Lord's Supper. Now, this is going into specifically here um, for the, the Baptists at this time, and not as much as a critique of the Roman Catholic Church 
they had already done that by saying, um, not allowing them to hold it. But, but chapters or paragraphs seven and eight are going to help us understand who can't and who can and why. So ignorant and ungodly persons are not allowed to take the Lord's Supper. Now, we must remember that ignorant in this time was not a burn, right? Uh, I think that's what young people say. Um, it wasn't like, you're ignorant. You can't take the Lord's Supper. No, it just means that you actually don't know who Jesus Christ is. And if you don't know who Jesus Christ is, if you don't know what the gospel is, then this isn't for you. It's not for you to take the bread and the cup. Because if you don't know Christ, you don't have communion with him. You can't partake or have koinonia, right, which we talked about earlier. You can't have this communion with, with Christ if you don't know who he is. And if you don't know who he is, you can't follow his commands. So if you were to do that as someone who is ignorant, the Bible actually talks about that we eat and drink condemnation onto ourselves. We see in the New Testament that some people were literally dying. They would take the Lord's Supper and they would just die. Um, and so, no, if you don't know Christ, this isn't for you because you can't be obedient to Christ if he has not saved your soul. He needs to save you before you're allowed to take it. Okay, I'm going to keep going. Uh, so who can take it and why or to what purpose? Those who know Christ and have communion with him. Think the Baptist Catechism, which was written to help us unpack the, the Baptist Confession, says it like this. Who are the proper subjects of this ordinance? They who have been baptized upon a personal profession of their faith in Jesus Christ and repentance from dead works. What is required to the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper? It is required of them that would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper, that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body, of their faith to feed upon him, of their repentance, love, and new obedience, lest coming unworthily they eat and drink judgment to themselves. Okay. So, they are being really clear that to take the Lord's Supper, you need to be able to look inside yourself and make sure that you are a believer. Okay? We are to unpack that reality also if we are in sin. That's why the confession says the ignorant or the ungodly. If you are in sin and you are totally um, not listening to God in his law, you are pushing him away. Um, the Lord's Supper is not for you if you are totally being radically um, disobedient to the Lord. If, if you are doing, that's why in, in excommunication, the Lord's Supper or, or church discipline, the Lord's Supper is withheld from those people. We will not give the supper to someone who will not repent of their sin. That is just good shepherding. That's helpful for the souls of people, for them to realize you are being left out of this beautiful thing because you have decided that your sin is more important than following Christ and being obedient to him. 
Okay, so as we continue then to see that, that they need faith, they need to be able to uh, realize that they love Christ, that they want to walk obediently with him, that they want to repent of their sins so they don't eat and drink judgment on themselves. I also want to point out the context of the profession, or profession, confession. The context of the profession, man, confession, is that baptism precedes the Lord's Supper. Okay, that wasn't done on accident. It wasn't done like they were editing the confession and then they're all like, whoa, look at that. Baptism showed up before the Lord's Supper. That's no big deal. No, it is a big deal. It is a big deal. That is done on purpose. That baptism would proceed the Lord's Supper. Because this is helping those understand that you have faith in Jesus Christ that you're putting your faith in him, as we learned last week, that you are, are holding on to this sign of the new covenant saying, I, I am going to receive this sign that says that I have been buried with Christ, that I have been raised with Christ from death, that, that Christ is now my Lord and Savior, and I'm going to walk in obedience to him. And as I walk in obedience to him, I am going to take the Lord's Supper, which he commanded me to take. Some have said that baptism is the door into the church. And the Lord's Supper is the family meal that we take. I think that's a good way to understand it. And even if you look back into um, the early uh, 17th century, um, the, the baptismals, I never say that right, is that how I say it, Dennis? Is it the baptismal? Yeah, the, the water? Okay. The baptismals were actually put at the front of the church as a sign to say when they would walk in, they would see where people would be baptized. And they would say, this is your entrance into the church. So you enter here, you walk by seeing where people would be baptized, and then you go in. And you sit down and then you partake of the Lord's Supper there inside uh, at the church. So I, I thought that was kind of an interesting tidbit of history that helps us understand kind of this progression. So the Lord's Supper is for a worthy receiver of, of the supper. And we know that those worthy receivers are those who have been baptized. Okay. Now, the worthy receiver does not feed upon Christ's body and blood carnally, but spiritually by faith and receive the benefits of his death. Here's one more quote, and then we're going to go rapid speed. Actually, I'm going to skip the quote. You can read it later. What I want you to see are the views of the bodily presence, okay? So as we've been talking about this, there have been four major views in church history on the bodily presence in the bread and in the cup. And so I want you to know the context of what we were just studying, and then I'm going to ask you a question about it at the end. Okay, so number one is the Catholic view. That is transubstantiation, okay? This is the idea that the body and the wine are literally by, and I'll say it like this, the incantation of the priest magically turned into Jesus. And if you think I'm just being mean to Catholics, I have actually given you a quote from the Catholic Catechism, okay? I footnoted it. Uh, it would hold up in research. You can go back. You can Google the Vatican and see that they actually believe that this is what happens, which is why Martin Luther and the rest of the Reformation said, no way. I can't be a part of this. 
And you think that Luther then would have come up with the view that maybe we hold, but he didn't, okay? So Luther view, or the Lutheran view on B, okay, is consubstantiation. And you might think, well, that kind of sounds a little bit similar. And the reality is, it is. It's very similar. The doctrine according to which the bread and the wine remain what they are, but there is in the Lord's Supper nevertheless a mysterious and miraculous real presence of the whole person of Christ, body and blood, in, under, and along with the elements. If you are confused by that, so is the rest of church history. Welcome, right? Even, even Lutherans, and I used to be one, okay? As a kid, though, so it doesn't really count. But, but they would even say, yeah, I mean, there's, there's some theological fine hairs that we need to divide there. And so I, I'll just give it to them and say, okay, we love you guys. And I, I don't think that that's right, but, but we still love you guys. All right, the next view is the Zwinglian view. And this is the one, although you may have never heard of Ulrich Zwingli. That's a fun name. Say that name with gusto, right? Ulrich. Um, that is the memorialist view, okay? And so that is the doctrine which says the bread and wine are just a symbol. They're figuratively representing or signifying spiritual truths or blessings, and that is the reception of a mere commemoration of what Christ did for sinners, and above all, a badge of the Christian's profession. Okay? So that's the Zwinglian view, and then we have the Calvin or the Reformed view. And this is known as the spiritual view, okay? The doctrine according to which the sacrament is connected not merely with the past work of Christ, with the Christ who died, but also with the present spiritual work of Christ, with the Christ that is alive in glory. So Calvin emphasizes the mystical's communion of believers. Now, communion of believers. Remember, that's going to go back to that word that I talked about, koinonia, which is what we got when we were reading in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17, that we partake together of the body and the blood of Christ. Okay, going back to this. The mystical communion of believers with the entire person of the Redeemer. The communion gives a life-giving influence on the believer, spiritually and mystically, mediated by the Holy Spirit, and is conditioned on the act of faith by which the communicant, this is important, symbolically receives the body and blood of Christ. Where the memorial view is us saying, this is who I am. The reform view is saying, this is what's been given to me. I think there's an interesting difference there that we need to unpack. Now, as we are out of time, somebody want to take a stab at who these Baptists were. Those four views we just talked about. If you say Catholic, you need to leave. But other than that, so you only have three. You only have three that you have to guess from. Again, being nice. What do you guys think? Which one was this confession trying to align itself with historically? Anybody? Anybody? Sticker? Cute sticker? You can get another cute sticker? Ben, let's hear it. Um, spiritual. Why? Because that's what it was outlining the entire time. Thank you, Ben. You, you always say it so precisely. Um, but, but yes, they were. But what I want you to hear, before we get scared, because most of us were taught the memorial view, before we get upset by that, the very first thing that the confession says is a perpetual remembrance. Okay? And, and just to throw a little more dirt 
uh, in the water, maybe muddy up just a teensy bit so we can have maybe a more charitable view, there's actually more debate right now happening between the Zwinglian view and the Reform view, saying, actually, they weren't that much different. That this memorialist view has been kind of taken and ran away with from Zwingli to where Ulrich himself might say, well, that's not actually what I taught. Um, you guys are taking that to the umph degree. And that is my sign that it's time to go. But I would say, yes, Ben is correct that they are identifying themselves with the reformed tradition. <laughs> the kids are like, it's over, Andrew. You're done. You're out of time. So let me pray for us. Thank you guys for being a captive audience. Uh, you literally were captive to me uh, this morning. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord's Supper. Father, as we celebrate it this morning, may we do so with happy hearts and, and as people who are so excited to walk in obedience to Christ. And as we think about these things, may we be nourished by the reality spiritually that Christ cared so much for us that he said, you must do this till I come back. There is so much beauty and helpfulness here. Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, may it hit us anew. May we be excited to partake of this wonderful ordinance that you instituted for us and our spiritual health. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.